0: morning to you this is mike smith we start today with the continuing stunning revelations here in the chinatown stabbing suspect blair evan donnelly this this is just a colossal betrayal of the public here stabs his own daughter to death they let him out stabs another guy they let him out again accused of stabbing three people in chinatown on sunday Now we have the leaked review board report. This is leaked to the media. This review board did not release this report. It was leaked to the press. Find out he stabbed another guy in 2017. This is a new one we learn about now. While he was inside the institution, attacks a guy with a knife. All this guy does is stab people over and over again. Killed his own daughter in the most savage fashion. They just keep letting him out. This is unbelievable. This guy was a ticking time bomb, and they knew it. They knew it. This leaked report. Significant threat to public safety. He would explode with violent outbursts, with no warning. And what did they do? They let him out, unescorted. No supervision we got Brad West standing by to discuss. Let's listen to Premier David Eby here speaking earlier this week. I am so angry. I am white-hot
1: angry that this person was released unaccompanied into the community to have a devastating impact. Okay, now
0: he's white-hot angry. He should be angry at himself. This is a provincial psychiatric hospital. This is a provincial review board. The members appointed by the Attorney General, he was the AG for five years, now he's shocked. Now he's white-hot angry after we've had a continuous string of these type of incidents. Let's discuss now with Brad West, the Mayor of Port Coquitlam, because I know this is of key concern to him as well. Brad West, thank you for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: Okay, I appreciate it a lot, and this is, I know, a key issue and concern for you. What are your thoughts on what we're learning here in this report?
1: Uh, it is absolutely jaw dropping. Yeah, it's it's actually worse than I could have ever imagined, and it it just goes to show this BC review board. I mean, do these people have no decency? They can't even be bothered to come out and face the public now. Yeah, you know we haven't heard from them. They're not putting anyone forward to be accountable for their decisions. Uh, quite frankly. The fact that they're even still having a job at this point is ridiculous. I know the premier has said he's angry and he's ordered a review. Fire the board. Yeah. Fire the board. What what more evidence do we need? These people have failed miserably in the job that they are supposed to be doing. They have shown no qualms about rolling the dice, gambling with people's public safety, I, you know, and you find out how much they knew about them, everything you just described, Mike, without warning, violent outbursts. I, I wonder, does anyone on the review board, would they be willing to take this individual into their own home? Would they be willing to risk their family's safety being in close proximity to this individual, knowing what they knew? Because that's what they did with other people. That's what they did with other family members.
0: This is one of the things, that there are a lot, so many unanswered questions here, and David Eby has appointed uh, a former police chief to, to look into it, which I, I, I guess it is good. But I I am very worried about the lack of transparency in public disclosure here. The only reason we know about this report, it was leaked to the media. It was not released by, by this review board. And one of my concerns right now, you just touched on it, is the people who made this decision and let this guy out are they still in place? Like, are they, are they been suspended pending this investigation? Are they still, are they still making more decisions to met, let more people out? Like, what, yeah, what is I, happening here?
1: I, I think they are. I think they are still in place because yeah. you can, you know, I, I bet you if they weren't, the province would be telling us that they'd be trumpeting that. So I think they're still in place. And by the way, this facility, this is in my backyard. This is on the border of, quitlam and poor coquitlam this yeah. is not the first time you know and and that's why whenever you know when you get some politicians shocked well, this has been going on for a long time this is not the first individual who has committed unspeakable heinous crimes the type of person who should never ever be let out and there's a lot been of- others there's a been the, others the, the, my the list so is getting to, longer the list is getting well, longer what it speaks to, it, it, yeah. it, it's you know that's why it's not that this was a mistake of course it was a mistake but this is the system operating exactly how it's been set up to operate they the marching orders have been to prioritize release over detention whether it's at the bc review board whether it's through the parole board this, this is the general trajectory that elected officials have set and so the system is operating as they set it up yeah. and it gets to a much bigger problem i i went and reviewed the members of this uh, bc review board and yep. looked at them they all have sterling credentials mike they're all former lawyers and judges and people who worked in the system what they don't have is an ounce of common sense apparently yep. because any person with any sense would know that an individual who brutally, I I can't even say the words as a as a father to two young kids, a, a person who brutally killed their own child. Yeah. And then stabbed other people. Yeah. Like, how in God's name do you think that that's someone who should be put back out on the street, unsupervised day passes? to go and victimize again and again. It is just, I don't have it's the words for it. It's
0: absolutely a colossal betrayal here, of the public trust and public safety. And I agree with you. I think we need to have some more information about what steps are, are being taken uh, to, uh, to protect the public from something like this happening again. My guest is Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West. Mayor West, while I have you here, let's uh, shift to another, I guess, key topic there has been so busy and so many developments here uh, this week. Let's talk about decriminalization of drug possession in British Columbia, 2.5 grams of the legal possession limit now, heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, crystal meth, crack cocaine. So you have been calling for months here now, for restrictions on public drug use. Uh, now we got the announcement yesterday, you will not be able to use these, these drugs within 15 meters of a wading pool or a skateboard park. And, and I'm listening to this yesterday, and are you, are you kidding me now with this? Like, now you're telling the public, okay, don't worry. When your toddler is splashing around in the, in the wading pool at the park, the guy have to be has to be at least sixteen meters away while he's smoking crack. Th- this is how they're fixing this, and they're asking they're asking the public to thank them for it. Your
1: thoughts, I, Mike? I I don't know why we have to fight so hard for things that should be so simple.
2: Yeah,
1: you know, like th- this was like the uh, the epitome of a no brainer. Yeah. That you don't want people who are doing, in some cases, lethal drugs. Fentanyl, child comes into contact with fentanyl, even physical contact you can kill them. That's how deadly that drug is. Yeah. And we have to fight so hard to get the government on board with the idea that maybe you shouldn't be doing that in a children's playground or at a splash park. Yeah. Are you kidding me? That should have been in there from day one. And yeah. what did they needs bring to be in done? the. This well, needs to be expanded when they bring... in... even more, right? Uh, of course. Yeah. I mean, even when they bring in, quote unquote, the fix, it's not okay. a fix. It doesn't go as far as the bylaw in Porco Coquitlam goes, which protects all parks. Because the same rationale that says you shouldn't be using fentanyl or crack in a playground applies to a soccer field where kids are playing. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I really don't understand why they were splitting hairs here. You know, keep it simple. Right. Because you can
0: still like under even under with what they did yesterday, you were still allowed to to use these hard drugs in a in a park. Correct. As long as you're not within 15 meters of a pool
1: or a playground. Yeah. So we're going to get our bio officer out there, police officer with a measuring tape. Yeah. Excuse me. Can you can you take a few steps that way? Yeah. Like, you know, uh, again, to me. The huge gap that's missing here that you and I have talked about is treatment, right? You know, we've got to put treatment and prevention, by the way, at the center of what we're trying to do, because we have a massive problem with it. I think, and I've talked to you about this, we need to get to mandatory treatment in some instances. You know, we've got people out on the streets, you know, they're alive, but they're not really existing. They're contorted up like pretzels. They're in no position to make a decision to get better or to get treatment. And and some people think leaving them in that state is compassion. That's not compassion at all. Yeah. Not at all. You know, And so if we want to get serious about dealing with this issue, we're not going to make any headway until we have a massive investment in treatment. And I'm sorry, in some cases, yes, mandatory treatment.
0: I agree with you. Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West, thank you for your time today. I
1: appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. Let's talk about the
0: soaring cost of rent in Metro Vancouver and beyond. Once again, Vancouver has set the Canadian benchmark record here. The highest rents in the country, $3,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment, pushing 4000 for a two-bedroom. Who can afford this? Forget about buying a home. That's become impossible for many. Just renting a place is becoming unaffordable. Okay, how does this happen in a province with rent control? 2%, that is the maximum annual rent allowable rent increase in B.C. this year, 2%. It has been set at 3.5% next year. Here's the thing, though. That only applies to existing tenants. If a tenant moves out, someone else moves in, the landlord can charge whatever rent he wants. There's no maximum cap. So that leads to the campaign now for what's called vacancy control. How would that work? It would tie the maximum rent hike to the actual housing unit, to the apartment, to the home. Even with the new tenant, you would face a maximum rent cap. Have a listen to Stephanie Smith here, president of the BCGEU Union, calling for this yesterday.
3: So, for example, a two-bedroom renting for $2,300 a month can't just be hiked to $3,300 a month for a new tenant moving in.
0: All right, let's discuss this campaign now with my guest, Carrie Michaels, BCGEU Executive Vice President. Carrie, thank you for coming on today.
4: Thanks for having me, Mike. Good morning.
0: Good morning to Okay, so let's talk about this campaign, uh, vacancy control. So how would this work now? Like what would be the maximum? Let's, let's say they did this and you have a new tenant moves in, what would be the maximum rent increase? Right now it's unlimited. What would it be under vacancy control?
4: Yeah, so with vacancy control, the landlord would not be able to increase the rent to whatever they want it to be, which is what currently is in place. And so they would be uh, obligated to rent that unit out to a tenant either at the same rent the prior tenant was was paying or at the maximum allowable increase set by the province for, um, for tenants, which currently is what we have for existing tenancy agreements, but as yeah. you mentioned, doesn't apply to new tenants.
0: Right, so this year 2%, so let's say one tenant moves out, a new tenant moves in, then you'd only be a you could potentially increase the rent for that new tenant but only by 2%
4: yeah and that's um based on how how the government implements uh these policies and we see there's you know different uh policy mechanisms that are implemented in different jurisdictions um and you know we've we've pointed to those in our study um for example manitoba has vacancy control and they they have um instances where it applies to for example landlords who have four or more units so it's it's definitely something that the government can implement uh, in a way that works for um, for renters in our province.
0: Yeah. What about OK, so I know the landlords who are listening to this right now, they're grinding their teeth listening to this because they're saying, hang on a second. You, you want to put a cap on rent. What about my input costs here that there's no cap on that? So my input costs are going up property taxes, uh, insurance, repairs interest rates on, on my mortgage. This is all going up, up, up. And now you're saying, I, you know, I'm not going to be allowed to recover any of this with a rent hike. What do you say to that?
4: Yeah. I mean, renters uh, firsthand understand the, the, pain of inflation and costs going up you know we we are experiencing that too and and for a lot of us you know if we move our rents are increasing 50 percent when our wages just aren't keeping up and so we we recognize that you know there are costs to um Uh, running housing and right now the residential tenancy act actually allows for landlords to recoup those costs if they demonstrate that it's impacting their ability to operate and so what vacancy control does is it makes that the exception not the rule and right now you know landlords uh, particularly large corporate investor landlords are able to increase rents to um, above market rates which is driving up the cost of housing for everyone
0: Okay. It sounds like though, the idea sounds like you're calling on landlords to effectively subsidize the rental costs for their, for their tenants. Because if you're going to say to them, okay, if you will bring in a new tenant, you can only raise the rent, let's say 2%, even though their costs might be going up by, who knows, double digits, 10% or more with inflation going on. So effectively you're, you're calling on the landlords to kind of eat, eat some of those costs, right? Basically subsidize for their tenants. I mean, is that a fair, well, fair interpretation of it?
4: Well, actually, what we see when we look at the implementation of uh, rent regulation in a variety of different places, so whether it's the US, Canada, Europe, um, in fact, multi-family housing as a sector is profitable regardless of whether these regulations exist. And so we aren't convinced that this is um, detrimental to the operation of housing. And in fact, right now, um, vulnerable, people, the vast majority of renters in BC are at risk of facing eviction and doubling their rents just because landlords have an incentive to get them out of their buildings so that they can increase the rent to what they want. And and this kind of profit-seeking is just, it's it's not acceptable. We've had four decades of the current market um, creating runaway unaffordability and we need the government to regulate uh, uh rents between uh between tenancies
0: as well. Speaking of Carrie Michaels, is the campaign for stricter rent control in British Columbia, including for, for new tenants, should they face a cap on their rent hikes. So here's the the thing that I, I think where this could badly backfire if it was brought in. If you brought this in and you had tenants throw or landlords throw up their arms and say, you know what, I'm done. I, I'm done with this. Uh, I can't. Uh, this is this is not fair to me. It's not affordable to me. I'm not going to rent out anymore. Or maybe I'll I'll put my place up for rent on Airbnb instead, where these type of caps don't apply. And we're seeing a huge surge in Airbnb rentals in in BC. Let me play a clip here for you, uh, Carrie, from Tom Davidoff, UBC professor. Here he is talking on this on this plan and how it could backfire. Yes dicey because when you punish people
5: for deciding to rent out their properties obviously you run the risk that people are going to be less likely to rent their properties out
0: yeah so if that happens i mean you could have you could have fewer rental properties available i mean this would be a disaster how do you respond to that
4: Um, that would be a disaster, but that's not what we see when these regulations are in place. And in fact, studies over both uh, the US in terms of New Jersey, as well as over a 50-year study in Lyon, France, found that over a period of Fifty years, there was no evidence that real estate and landowner profitability declined because of these kinds of controls. And you know, this threat that landlords won't rent out their their units, you know, this is something that we hear all the time when these kinds of regulations are being advocated for, and we just do not see um, this happening when when these regulations mm-hmm. are in place. And in fact. As a union, you know we hear from employers when we're organizing workplaces, oh, we're going to have to shut this place down or we'll have to fire people. And in fact, once the workers unionize and they, they negotiate a collective agreement, the employer right. adjusts to that circumstance. And in this case, we see the same thing with landlords and particularly corporate landlords and investors who are profiting off of this current situation and creating instability for over a million renters in B.C.,
0: how do you explain, therefore, the surge in Airbnb suites and rentals in British Columbia? I mean, you've got thousands of Airbnbs, and when you go on Airbnb and take a look at the places that are available in B.C., sometimes you'll see these places typically rent for 200 $300 a night. So, and you can understand why landlords, okay, I'm forget about renting this out to a long-term renter. I'm just going to put this on Airbnb instead because I'm fed up with these rent controls and and these type of ideas. I mean, isn't the surge in Airbnb kind of evidence of that?
4: Well, we, what we've advocated for since we launched our Affordable BC campaign in 2017 is tighter controls around short-term rentals because we see this even without regulations in place restricting tenants. Uh, rent increases between tenancies they are continuing to seek out uh, higher profitability and this is one of the ways that the government needs to look at the myriad of complex market factors it's not vacancy control that causes this behavior and they need to regulate short-term rentals so that this this can't be the outcome and they they are they're increasing the the uh, rules around where you can have short-term rentals, how many units you can own that you you rent out as a short-term rental, and and these yeah. are the kinds of things that we need to be seeing because ultimately, when it comes down to it, multifamily housing w- will continue. It is it is uh you know. Uh, quite a, a profitable sector, even when we see these kinds of regulations in place. And this is a way to stop the loss of affordable units. Thousands of affordable units are being lost every year, because we do not uh, protect tenancies and, and we do not protect renters between tenancies.
0: Carrie, thank you for coming on today to talk about this. I appreciate it.
4: Yeah, thank you for having me. Happy to uh, chat about this anytime.
0: All right, here we go. What a busy news week this has been and we've got a lot of ground here to cover Justin Trudeau yesterday putting Canada's big grocery store chains on notice. You guys better lower your prices here or there is going to be trouble Trudeau yesterday as uh, saying that the CEOs of these big grocery store chains they will be summoned to Ottawa and they're being ordered you better do something about these runaway food prices or we're gonna come and get and put the hammer down here maybe even with punitive taxes we got Bill Thielman standing by to discuss first let's have a listen to Trudeau here Here he is speaking yesterday
1: it's not okay that our biggest grocery stores are making record profits while Canadians are struggling to put food on the table. And we expect to hear from them by Thanksgiving on what their plan is to stabilize prices. Okay, by
0: Thanksgiving. That turkey better be cheaper by Thanksgiving or going to be some trouble here. Let's discuss now with my guest Bill Thielman. Bill is a former Vancouver City Council candidate. He's a veteran B.C. political strategist and campaigner. He has seen it all in this province. Bill, thanks a lot for coming on today.
2: My pleasure, Mike.
0: Okay, let's start with Trudeau and his threats here to the big grocery store chains here. What do you think of this move?
2: Oh, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. (laughs) I mean, I can just see Galen Weston and all the CEOs of big food companies shaking in their veritable boots today. I mean, really, you know, this is... I don't know, it, it, it smells of the desperation that we've seen in this recent po- uh, like several recent polls, where the Liberals are significantly behind the Conservatives, up to 15 points behind the Conservatives. So, uh, you know, we, we saw wage and price controls for those of your listeners who are old enough. I, I know you're not, but I was around in the 70s and we had wage and price controls brought in by, guess who, Pierre Trudeau. And yeah. uh, it didn't, didn't really work. Uh, he pooh pooed it before in the election before when the Conservatives proposed it and then he did it after he won the election. So, you know, so we've, we've seen all these things before. I mean, it it's kind of a, a bit of a proverbial deathbed repentance at this stage, I think. Um, I don't really think that the executives are going to say, yeah, absolutely. You know, what were we thinking? We were raising prices yeah. too much. We're sorry. You know, this is a business. Can and they he... have suppliers who are raising prices. They have trucking companies and gas prices. There's lots of additional costs involved when we have an inflationary right. spiral.
0: Right. Can he order these companies to... To lower their prices. I mean, it's not like the, the grocery store business is a monopoly controlled by one single company. I mean, there is competition. Now it is dominated by, th- by three domestic giant grocery store conglomerates, right? You got Loblaws, Metro, Sobeys, and they dominate this market. We, we know that, but can he order them to lower their prices or else I'm going to hammer you with, with taxes? Can he do that?
2: Um, legislatively, technically, probably, Mike, but mm. you know, practically speaking, I think this is a shame and blame type exercise here. He's, he's hoping that they will actually do something and perhaps behind the scenes, Trudeau's staff have talked to them. And you know, this is kind of like, uh, uh, the phoniest of wrestling matches and they're going to come up with something, but I doubt that that's the case. I, I'd be surprised if that were the case. I think this is really threats and cajoling for a while. And then, if they wanted to. But, I mean, for example, they're, they're going after, I think, the top five. Um, yeah. What about number six, seven, and eight? Uh, why would you exclude uh, other large grocery chains from that? Why would you exclude anybody if oh, that's yeah. where you're going to go? And if you go legislatively, you imagine that'll get to court in a New York minute. Uh, if if only the largest companies are being hit with this, uh, I think that would be very challengeable does, in a whole bunch of ways.
0: Does it also make sense that, he's going to try and reduce prices at the grocery store by increasing taxes on them like if you you're saying to these grocery stores you better you better lower your prices or we're going to put a tax on you i mean doesn't that just create another input cost for these grocery store chains I and mean, maybe the prices go up even higher
2: yeah it could it could well do and y- you know if if you want to have a windfall profit tax, then you could say, let's put it on oil companies who are making lots of money right now. Let's put it on anybody who's making windfall profits. But once you start, you know, and I'm I'm a left winger, but once you start tinkering in the market like this, it's a world of pain. It's really hard to do that. Uh, There's no absolutely simple way that you can be guaranteed that what you, the action you take as a federal government will have the desired outcomes and that people will see it on the bottom line of their, their grocery bills or their gas bills or anything else. So I I don't know. I, 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 I think this is one of those off the corner of the desk on an envelope, handwritten at the Liberal caucus retreat <sighs> ideas. Okay. I don't see it working.
0: Okay, we'll see what happens there. Let's talk yeah. about the other big uh, announcement Trudeau made here, all re- announcing that the GST would be removed from building new rental buildings. Here's the announcement.
1: I'm pleased to announce that we are going to be removing the federal GST for the construction of new apartment buildings, and I'm encouraging all provinces to do the same.
0: Okay. So when he says all provinces to do the same, I guess he's saying what? Provinces should remove the PST, provincial yeah, sales tax on yeah. these new rentals. Yeah, your thoughts.
2: Well, I haven't seen anybody jump to that idea yet to, yeah. so far any of the pro- I mean the premiers including Premier Eby, hasn't yet said something to the best of my knowledge and I'm I'm not sure that they will. I, I you know, again, maybe this is a good idea. But, you know, if I'm a a homeowner and I'm buying my first or second or third house, doesn't matter, apartment, and I see, well, okay, so if I were to rent, I would get a big discount. But because I'm actually putting my hard-earned dollars into this, I don't get the discount. You know, I, I think it just, again, it's one of these things where when you start thinking about it more, there's lots of holes and potential problems. The other thing is, why didn't you do it a lot sooner? Yeah. Well, the, he
0: talked about this eight years ago. I mean, this is this is an idea that's been kicking around for a long yeah, time, promised yeah, it years. You know, ago.
2: so, I mean, it, it potentially could be a good idea. I'll go that far. I think it could be a good idea if we saw it fleshed out properly and, and see what the parameters of it are. And then, you know, we had here in Vancouver, we had... Uh, a tax that was applied or removed retroactively by city council are you going to retro i mean what if i just completed a rental apartment building and i paid 10 million in in gst am i going to be able to get oh, it back what's yeah. what's the statute of limitations on on <laughs> getting it back too so i don't know you know it's just is this, again, uh, it just seems it just seems desperate to me i guess is what i say
0: Trudeau is looking very vulnerable here. I mean, you take a look at these opinion polls that federal conservatives and Paulev are just surging here, and it just, like you said, seemed a little desperate. He's trying to find anything to sort of stop the bleeding here. And I had Poev on the show yesterday. I asked him about this GST rental idea, and he, and he said Trudeau basically stole the idea from him. Yeah. You know Poev earlier promised this that Trudeau's taken my ideas now.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and we've seen that one as well. And I, I see he says, uh, build housing, not bureaucracies, which is a, a good line. But I mean, uh, you know, taking the tax off doesn't build a bureaucracy necessarily. But uh, look, Mike, the uh, the last poll that's come out, I think, so far from September 9th to 12th, Abacus Dad, a 41 conservatives, 26 liberal, 18 NDP. Um, that's, oh, yeah. that's majority territory for the Conservatives, not just, a, not just the most seats, but a majority for the Conservatives, if that keeps up. Now, we have two years left in the Confidence and Supply Agreement with the NDP and the Liberals. Um, that said, you've got to wonder whether Jagmeet Singh and the NDP are sitting there watching this slow-motion train wreck that's the Liberal Party right now and saying, uh, maybe we should get off the train at the next stop and cause an election before Ooh. it's too late. Yeah. I don't rule. I, listen, I don't rule it out. We've seen it before, and as you know, and all our listeners know in BC, John Horgan pulled the plug on the on the confidence and supply agreement with the Green Party, and uh, to Sonia No's enormous disgust. But he yeah. won a majority election after that in 2020.
0: Okay, speaking of of BC, let's bring it home here, Bill. just finish up and talk about this uh, shakeup in BC provincial politics this week. So we had Bruce Bandman the MLA and Abbotsford, B.C. Liberals, now the B.C. United Party. They changed their name. He has crossed the floor here. He joined the B.C. Conservative Party. Let's listen to what he had to say. I asked him on the show this week, are there any others that could follow you bolt to the Conservative Party? Here's what he said.
5: There are others,
0: and I'll let them speak for themselves. I'm not the only one that has shown uh, increasing uh, discontent Uh, within the party. Um, I'm not alone in that. Okay, so he joins John Rustad, another ex-liberal, ex-BC United leader of the B.C. Conservative Party. They've got two MLAs at the legislature now. Your thoughts?
2: Well, that is as we know. That's what gives them additional funding for research. They make more money as a house leader and leader. Uh, yeah. They get more uh, prestige out of questions and question period. They're guaranteed questions. All of these things were done ironically by the NDP for the Green Party as part of their their deal, so they could kind of pump them, pump up their tires a little. Uh, I would. I would not at all be surprised, and I've listened to you and Keith that discussed this this week, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see one or two more MLAs jump ship, depending on how Rustad handles himself and Bandman handles himself in this next little while. Because, you know, you're watching uh, clearly, this is, you know, we haven't seen a product uh, rebranding launch fail as bad since New Coke. I mean, this, <laughs> this BC United Party launch is just brutal. And uh, we saw that the, they came in third or no, fourth, I think, in the uh, Esquimalt wanda de Fuca by-election. Oh. They're in third place in this Main Street poll behind the B.C. Conservatives, And the B.C. Conservatives have no significant structure or significant amounts of money. They've got a name,
0: so, though. they got a name.
2: But they have a great name. And we've seen this in yeah. the Green Party, both uh, provincially and federally. And in other provinces, they're kind of like, a, you know, nobody, nobody really knows exactly what they're doing, but they've heard a Green Party, and they know it's environmental, and that's about it. Yeah. So, and we saw it with the Reform Party way back when. They, they didn't have huge amounts of money, and they wiped out the Conservatives, basically. So, you know, I think Kevin Falcon and his team have to be extremely nervous. I, I don't think they should throw the baby out with the bathwater yet, but, but uh, you know, and you can't go back to BC Liberal now. I mean, the flip side, everyone says, well, he should have stayed with the name, and I kind of think they should have because they've got over the worst of, of any voter uh, reticency, but the, the numbers on Justin Trudeau, the disgust and hatred, which is kind of irrational to me, but um, I don't know that they would have been better off as B.C. liberal anymore either. So, you know, well, now, uh, well now anyway,
0: it's the working, he's getting the ricochet on the other side because the, yeah. the federal conservatives are surging. Polyev is on a roll here now, and I think there may be some bleed over effect, and that's helping the B.C. conservative brand.
2: Yeah, yeah, you've got you got the you got it going both ways. It's a double edged yeah. sword. That nobody wants to be connected to liberals, and everybody uh, on the right wants to be connected to conservatives more right now. Not everybody, but a lot. And then, uh, but I think that the the left of cent- center center left federal NDP or liberal voters are now provincially saying, "Hey, I got to go with with David Eby. Uh, he seems reasonable and sensible. And Kevin Falcon yeah. doesn't seem to be doing it. So if you lose your you know half of your coalition or, or half of a half of your coalition, you're going to lose."
0: All right, Bill Thielman is my guest. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Ed in South Surrey. Hi, Ed. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, hi. Regarding the housing situation, to me, they've got to do two things. Number one, eliminate any foreign ownership in B.C., period, retroactively. If that's 5% of the market, we're over 200,000 homes coming to market right away. And as far as A&B and B, basically do what they did in New York because this $1,000 charge is a joke, an absolute joke dealing with the rental situation.
0: Okay, Ed, thank you for the call. Well, there's already a ban on, on foreign purchases in B.C., right, Bill?
2: Yeah, and, I mean, there's there's strong taxes. But but as an investor, Mike, you can, you can uh, be a foreign investor in an apartment building. I mean, <laughs> that's not a problem. Mm. So so we've got some some real challenges there. I, look, I, I think whatever anybody says, everything that's been tried, and it mostly revolves around increased supply, increased supply, increased supply, it hasn't worked. We've got the highest rents, the highest housing prices, Everything we've been doing isn't working. So it's time to really rethink this. And I, I encourage both the federal, provincial government, and the opposition parties to all put their heads together with people who know what's going on and say, how can we fix this? Because this is a, you know, we're getting to an intolerable situation where the people who we need to run our economy, the workers who are frontline responders, who are grossly clerks, who are anything in this economy, can't afford to live in Vancouver, can't afford to live in in Victoria, Kelowna, other places. And we have to fix it somehow. And whether we go the English route and have um, a lot of government involvement in housing, maybe that's what we have to start looking at.
0: Karen in Surrey. Hi, Karen. Go ahead.
2: I think that he's coming out uh, to go after the grocery stores because Jagmeet just posted that Sobeys made a 52% increase in profit. He's going after them because he doesn't want to piss Jagmeet off. And here's the thing: if you
4: impose restrictions on grocers, where does it stop? What other mm. industries are we going to go after? Quite frankly, if he imposes
2: taxes, guess who pays for it? You and I. And in the end, this is a free. This is a corporate. Corporations are employing thousands and thousands and thousands of Canadians across country. And stop going after these corporations. Yeah, they're making profits, okay. but
1: it's not a crime.
0: Thank you, Karen, for the call. Bill, your thoughts?
2: Well, I mean, like many people, I have RSPs and investments and things, so I guess in some ways I'm a beneficiary of the higher prices as well as being frustrated when I go and do my grocery shopping. So I I think we're all caught in that double bind to some degree. But, look, I think Karen is, is right. It's very hard to intervene in a free market system, even though it might be an oligopoly, but it's still very hard to intervene and have the successful results that you want. Yeah. Brian in Coquitlam. Hi, Brian. Go ahead.
1: Hey, Mike. I blame the federal government and provincial government for the high prices
3: of the food because of the carbon taxes, because that applies mm. to the farms and the, and the sh- uh, shipping and the trucks, and the supply management for the dairy and the eggs and, and the milk. Uh, it's the government that caused the high f- prices. So I think it's hypocritical of him being, oh, we're going to call them and make them uh, charge less when it's the supply chain, the whole supply chain has been affected by the carbon taxes.
0: Yeah, okay, Brian, thank you for that. Well, touching on one of Pierre Polyev's frequent talking points here, axe the tax. I think it could be working for him, Bill. Your thoughts?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think people just, yeah. you know, it's that visceral You get at the pumps and, and you look at the price and you look at the $100 plus amount that you're putting into your tank and you're like, what in the world? I think the problem, though, you know, with Brian's point is we have inflation all over the world, and we have higher carbon taxes in all sorts of countries, in Europe in particular, But and we have places with no carbon tax, and they still have inflation. So I, 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 okay. I don't disagree that it's a good political piece, and I have uh, grave doubts that the carbon tax has actually been working the way it's supposed to, but I okay. don't think that would solve it. Bill,
0: thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Let's talk about auto theft on the rise across Canada now. This is now a billion-dollar industry here when it comes to stealing vehicles across our country. Where do these vehicles end up? Sometimes they end up outside of Canada. I've got Michael Rota standing by to discuss. Now, this happened to our family once uh, several years ago now. Our family minivan disappeared from our driveway overnight. Very strange. Police did find the vehicle several days later, been abandoned, stolen by somebody. and They were somehow able to hack into our vehicle and create like a duplicate key. They had like this anti-theft system in this van. That didn't stop them. They were able to somehow hack into the vehicle. That is happening more often. High-tech auto theft. Have a listen to this report here now from Global News.
1: Dealing with stolen cars, nothing new for police, but this is another level. I was surprised because I know
0: that these cars can be stolen in this manner, but it shocked me to see how quickly simply this
6: happened.
1: Forget about prying open the car door or stealing keys. This carjacking operation works off a couple of iPads in a backpack and a cable antenna known as a signal booster. Watch how quickly it happens. The cable is hung by the front door It detects the key fob inside the house, records the code, then that code is used to start the vehicle and within 18 seconds, the car is gone.
0: The cars are being exported outside of Canada. Uh, Yeah, Uh, sometimes these cars end up as far away as Africa or elsewhere on the black market. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Michael Rota. Michael is the president and CEO, Canadian Finance and Leasing Association, one of Canada's top experts on this. Michael, thank you for coming on today.
6: Thanks, Mike, for having
0: me. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. And your group recently released a report on this. How often is a,
6: is a vehicle stolen in Canada? That happens a lot, right? We estimate uh, approximately every six minutes a vehicle is stolen somewhere in Canada.
0: Every six minutes. Okay, so by the time we get to the next commercial break here, someone's, someone's car is going to be stolen. What is the, uh, is that rising? Is that number rising?
6: Absolutely. Uh, across Canada, it's gone up about, uh, 24 percent since just since last year wow um, but if we look at uh like the last uh five to seven years in the uh the gta area has gone up over 300 percent holy smokes how did we get to this point here how did that happen i think it's a couple of factors one is uh we became victims of our own success in the early 2000s we had a we, we, again, had a bit of a, an epidemic of stolen vehicles, uh, but policing and border services uh, sort of brought their resources to, to bear and manufacturers uh, made some changes to the vehicles amongst a, a number of other things and brought those numbers precipitously down. Um, however, once those numbers were down, uh, the provincial auto theft teams were disbanded and border services went on to other issues. Um, and you combine that with a, uh, a, a low supply environment um, and, a lot, and a high demand. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes the value of these, these vehicles jump up again. And uh, Canada, unfortunately, now with, with uh, low enforcement, has become a, uh, a high-reward, low-risk environment for thieves to operate in.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's big money out there to be made for sure. So, What about the, the ability for thieves to break into high-tech vehicles? Uh, we heard in that report there about the ability to use an iPad to duplicate a key fob. I mean these thieves are getting smart. I mean this isn't like the old days you hotwire a vehicle, right? Now you need a you need an iPad to break into these vehicles. What is
6: going on there? Yeah, correct. So that's what I referenced when I was saying uh you know, we've become victors of our own success. Those uh uh the, the the new electronic push start buttons and uh, anti-theft yeah. devices and tracking devices that are embedded uh, in the vehicles that you purchase that's what helped to bring down uh, in, in part the um, the stolen vehicles in the early 2000s but yeah. you know technology is a double-edged sword and uh, when the criminals have figured a way to um, to defeat those systems uh, because they're the same across the vehicles you defeat them in for you know in one brand you feed them across the, the, the whole uh, offering of that vehicle so now they use uh, what you described, which is called a relay attack. Um, additionally, there's um, uh, there's a sort of a port that's uh, on a part of the car that's easily accessible from the outside. You can you can hack into that. Uh, so there's a number of, of ways now that criminals can very quickly uh, identify a car, get into either into the port or use a relay attack to get the uh, the code and and be off with your car in 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 not even minutes and seconds.
0: Well, wow. you mentioned the enforcement issue, Michael, and and I wonder if if Canada is getting disproportionately hurt here on the on these surging vehicle thefts. Like, is it is there a lack of enforcement here?
6: So the reason I say it's an enforcement issue is uh, for for two reasons. Number one, anecdotally, when I speak with uh, insurance investigators. They tell me that when they're recovering um, uh, containers of stolen vehicles overseas, uh, disproportionately, there'll be uh, Canadian vehicles uh, as opposed to U.S. vehicles. And so these are, you know, uh, containers leaving North America. Also, uh, um, speaking with my um, uh, counterparts at the various uh, uh, manufacturer associations, I'm told that on for certain brands, uh, the, uh, the, th- the theft rate is 10 times higher in Canada than in the U.S so if you then also uh you know understand that the u.s is 10 times the size that gives you the magnitude of the, of the situation in canada
0: wow that's interesting and i remember when our vehicle was stolen several years ago basically it was just some people out for a joyride people were there was some drug use going on and the vehicle was abandoned i wonder if there are some other, more, maybe more sinister motivations going on for stealing these vehicles, like illegal activities, organized crime. Your thoughts?
6: Yeah. So, absolutely. So, actually, I'm I'm told by police that the the minority of cases are what you describe, which is, um, you know, a low level criminal taking the car for some sort of ancillary crime. So, you know, joyriding, smash and grab, something along that lines. And those vehicles are typically recovered. Um, But the majority of vehicles are being stolen um, by low level criminals, but, you know, at the behest of organized crime groups um, who then, you know, pay off that 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 the person who actually stole the vehicle and then arrange for the vehicle to either be revinned. So that's changing the vehicle identification number and sold somewhere either in the same market or in Canada or the U.S., or increasingly to ship those vehicles because they're worth a lot more overseas um, to Africa, Eastern Europe and Asia, depending on the type of vehicle. Um, and we've seen that that increasing and it's it is a very lucrative crime. And that is actually what's paying for a lot of the, the, the guns and drugs uh, and other criminal activity with, that are that's happening here in Canada.
0: Well wow, that's amazing speaking to Michael Rota Canadian Finance and Leasing Association vehicle theft surging across Canada that's really interesting about this sort of international black market that's going on for these stolen vehicles so where do these vehicles end up they could end up
6: anywhere right I mean but is it like Africa Asia or some of the hot spots yeah, so Africa, Asia, and Eastern Europe are the hotspots, depending mm. on the vehicles. So more utility vehicles would be in Africa, sometimes the Middle East. Uh, the luxury vehicles typically would either go to Asia or to Eastern Europe. Um, and it's it's gotten to the point now where Canada has a reputation as being a donor country for stolen vehicles. And I'm told wow. by some automotive exporters that certain carriers now, uh, like so shipping carriers, refuse to take Canadian vehicles on their ships because of the potential liability when they land on the other side.
0: Okay. We talked a little bit about some of the high tech thefts that are going on. What about, and I heard you talking about this recently. You know, people, people heard about car and that's kind of a, a scary concept. But tell me your concerns about people who are maybe their Uber Eats drivers or their diet, di- you know, DoorDash drivers leaving their vehicles running while they're making deliveries. Are, are cars being stolen at that point?
6: Yeah, it's amazing to think that that in this day and age that people still do that. I, I understand the convenience of, you know, you, you think to yourself, well, it's not going to happen to me. I'll leave my car running and unattended, and quickly run up in, into the, the condo and, and deliver the food or do whatever. Um, but you come out sometimes and that car's not waiting for you. So, you know, we've been trying to do some public awareness to, to try and, you know, prevent the, uh, the theft of vehicles in the first place. And the first first thought of defense, obviously, is don't leave your, your vehicle running in and unattended. Um, if you've got a garage, park it in the garage so it has additional safety. Um, if you do have a push button start, uh, vehicle, there's ways to defeat the relay attacks. So for example, these little devices called a Faraday bag, um, and, or, or sometimes a Faraday locker. And what you do is you put your keys in this little pouch and it blocks the signals from being sent out. So that way, instead of coming home and just dropping your keys, you know, on the counter next to the front door, bring the keys deeper into the house and better yet drop them in one of these bags. They're somewhere between 20 and $40. Uh, depending where you buy them and, and how fancy they are. So, easy way to sort of make your vehicle a little bit more difficult to steal. And if you're on the top of the list, you're one of these, you know, top 10 stolen vehicles and, uh, or, you know, and Ford F 150s, for example, is a per- perennial favorite. So, it's uh, usually in the top five. I, I don't know where it is exactly this year, um, but also in an expensive vehicle, we sometimes uh, would recommend the investment in what, what are called um, secondary ignitions, uh, which is a, a little wow. bit, you know, that that'll, you're looking at a couple hundred bucks. Even over a thousand dollars to have that installed, um, but th- so what happens is now you have to engage this secondary ignition first before you can engage the primary ignition. It makes it much more difficult to steal. And if you've got a high value vehicle that's on that list, you know it's probably worth that investment.
0: What about putting some sort of a tracking device in your vehicle? I've heard of people who put like an air tag in their trunk, so if it is stolen, they can track it.
6: So that's helpful. Um, I know the police would say that you you know you should call them first and and not attend to pick up pick up the vehicle. because so, what some, sometimes will happen with the criminals, they'll they'll steal the vehicle and they'll park it somewhere else in the city just to cool off and keep an eye on it to see, um, you know if it's attracting police attention. Uh-huh. Um, however, once it's being sent sent out and it gets to the ports, um, was recently at the Montreal uh, Port Authority, and and they were telling me um, with the val with the these the sort of quantity of containers, even if they know that there's a stolen vehicle in a pile of containers, they're just not able to go in and and interdict that that uh, container and pull the stolen vehicles out. So you'll know where it is, uh, but unfortunately, it's probably still on its way overseas.
0: Hey, Michael, last question for you. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground here. We see the numbers surging here on vehicle thefts in Canada. What is your organization calling for? Can government do more
6: to crack down on this? Yeah, absolutely. I, we, we've we seen some, uh, some movement at the provincial level. So recently, the Ontario government announced a $52 million program to reinstitute the uh, provincial auto theft uh, team there, along with uh, specialized prosecutors. We'd like to see more provinces, particularly the more populous ones like Alberta and Vancouver and Quebec, do the same thing. Um, that does make a big difference. But uh, where we're, we're not seeing a lot of activity is the federal level. We'd love the federal government to step up, particularly Canada Border Services Agency, and take this uh, issue seriously. We understand that the CBSA, uh, their primary responsibility is keeping bad things like guns and drugs from coming in the country. But that's really only one side of the equation when you're dealing with organized crime. And you can't solve the equation by only working on one side. You need to attack them on the, on both. And we'd like to see some some federal leadership and resources put, put towards hardening our borders and making it much more difficult for these to operate within Canada.
0: Michael, thank you for your time today. I
6: appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great you day. Matt,
0: I, same to you. I appreciate it a lot. Michael Rota there, President, CEO, Canadian Finance and Leasing Association. All right, here we go now with the soaring popularity of personal electric vehicles. I'm talking electric bikes, e-scooters, electric unicycles. They are everywhere now. You can understand why. The battery power is really improved. No license required. No insurance. No wonder more people are trying them out. Okay, here's the question today. Are they too popular Are they, are users of these vehicles breaking the rules? Should there be a crackdown on these e-vehicles and e-scooters? Talked about this on the show earlier this week. I spoke to Daniel Fontaine. He's city councilor in New West. He is calling for some uh, stricter rules around, especially around e-scooters. Listen to him, what he said to me about how many of them are on the sidewalks in New West.
2: The sidewalks
0: are uh,
1: are filled with uh, electric scooters, uh, whether it's on Columbia Street or in Uptown, New Westminster, or any part of town. You see them definitely taking up uh, a larger and
3: larger uh, portion of the the sidewalks.
0: All right, let's discuss with my guest, Bradley Spence. Bradley is the owner of EVs, electric vehicle shop in Vancouver, and I know that he's a very busy guy over there. I always appreciate his time. Bradley, thanks for coming on.
3: Hey, thanks for having me again.
0: Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it. So when, when you hear this city councillor there talk about the sidewalks basically being packed with these e-scooters, are you buying that? Are you seeing that out there, are a lot of these e-scooters on the sidewalk?
3: No, I don't know New Westminster. I, I went to college there, but I don't know the streets very well, so I don't know how their bike lane infrastructure is. But in the downtown core, I know there are a lot of bike lanes, and you do see some, the odd scooter rider riding on the sidewalk. But most of the time, they are sticking to bike lanes. If these sidewalks are crowded with uh, scooters in the U.S., that's definitely a problem. Um, I believe it is an $81 fine as well, plus two points if you have a driver's license on your driver's license.
0: Okay, are these e-scooters legal, uh, or is it sort of a patchwork right now? Because I know some municipalities have done pilot projects. Are they legal everywhere? What's the status of them?
3: No, they're not legal everywhere, and I should have done my research. I can't remember if New Westminster is part of the pilot program or not, but it's up to the municipality to, to make the rules. It is a three-year pilot program. After three years, they're going to reevaluate the rules and legislation that they're going to have. But right now, there are a lot more lax on them, and the police officers have been told to give warnings only. They're not actually giving out physical tickets. So if you're riding without a helmet, they'll just give you a warning. If you're riding on the sidewalk, they should just give you a warning. Uh, it just depends on the officer you get as well sometimes.
0: Okay, are riders of electric scooters, electric unicycles, are some of them breaking the rules and, and riding dangerously? Let me play a clip here for you, Bradley, for your thoughts. So this is Daniel Fontaine again, earlier this week on the show, New West City Councillor. Listen to him describe this e-scooter collision that he witnessed.
3: Uh An e-scooter uh, went... Uh, whizzing by several pedestrians right where I was near a
1: cafe and just plowed into someone. Uh, Literally, uh, she got knocked over. He fell off the the e-scooter. Thankfully, she didn't look too seriously injured. But if you're a senior and you get hit by something that's going 30 or plus kilometers an hour on a sidewalk, it can
3: can mean life or death.
0: Okay. Obviously, not a good situation if an e-scooter rider is zipping down the sidewalk and and plows into somebody. Bradley, I mean, that's... One story that we've heard, how often is this happening? Is it a concern for you?
3: Um, it's not as much of a concern as, as, as cars not seeing scooter riders and hitting scooter riders. We see we do see some scooters come back damaged from crashes. But what, there are cars that are driving recklessly and end up on the sidewalk killing pedestrians. A three-ton car is way more dangerous than a 30-pound scooter or 40-pound scooter. So it is unfortunate. I hate it when I see these things on the sidewalk. It is dangerous. Often I see them as often sitting on the sidewalk, and uh, we all know teenagers don't have the same uh, sense sometimes uh, at that younger age, but uh, I think stricter rules do need to come into place, uh, especially once it's for your pilot program's over.
0: Right, okay, what are the existing rules now? If you're in a municipality where this pilot project has been introduced, you must wear a helmet, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, you have to be 16 years or older, uh, stick to bike lanes, stay off the sidewalk. If there's no bike lane, you're allowed on roads. Posted speed limit of sixty kilometers an hour or less. Sixty kilometers an hour, you can go on them. No, no. Yeah, if the road has a posted speed limit of sixty kilometers an hour or less, you're allowed on that road if there's no bike. Going.
0: Okay. Is there a speed limit for, let's say, e-scooters?
3: uh yes. They don't want you going faster than twenty-four kilometers
0: an hour. Tw- twenty-four clicks an hour. Okay. They can they can go a lot faster than that, though, right?
3: Um, Most of our entry-level scooters top out at about 30 kilometers an hour. Anything that goes faster is not technically street legal. Um, So there's more, we do sell some that are more made for private property or enthusiasts that like to go on logging roads, dirt bike tracks, you name it.
0: Yeah. I think for a lot of people who are looking to getting into this now, they're not necessarily looking for recreating off road. I think some people are looking at this as a commuter option just to save, save money. Um, beat the gas pump, beat the yeah, insurance, beat ICBC? Yeah, your thoughts?
3: I was going to say uh, 98% of our sales are commuter scooters. They're not uh, being used for anything other than commuting. So, yeah, yeah. And, are, God, are, are, are the cities too crowded with uh, these things? And um, I guess my thing is, are bicycles too crowded on, on streets as well? Because I know back in the day, bicycles were a big problem on the streets, and now they're widely accepted. The odd drivers just get annoyed, obviously. But uh it, it's only a matter of time before they're all accept, accepted and more infrastructurally put into place by the, the government uh, to make it safer for everybody.
0: Yeah. I mean, this may be a train you can't stop here because I've heard people say, Oh, they should be banned. I don't like them. Well, you know, I think the genie may be already out of the bottle here. And for so many people who are embracing this sort of personal electric technology to get around, you know, would you say it's time to embrace this now and, maybe consider some some more rules around it?
3: Absolutely. I mean, you can't really stop change. They can try to slow it down, whether it's people complaining to the government or the government itself, but they're getting so popular. And when it comes down to it, I know Canada is trying to be more environmentally friendly and reduce the amount of cars on the road, reduce the emissions, uh, and buying a scooter, especially from a, a place that can actually repair them so you're not contributing to it, um, is way better for the environment, and it does reduce the amount of cars on the road, which ultimately makes the street safer for everybody.
0: Okay, Bradley, hit me with the price tag here. If I came down to EVs today looking to buy an electric scooter, how much would I be looking
6: at?
3: For a commuter scooter, it goes anywhere from as low as $600 all the way up to $1,400, and we offer financing as well, so it's affordable for anybody.
0: $600? Oh, that surprises me. I thought it would be more.
3: Note that we have an entry level one at six hundred dollars six hundred what do you get for small, small what, do you,
0: what do you get for six hundred like what what is the range like the battery life on a six hundred dollar e scooter
3: yeah it's a top set at twenty five kilometers an hour. you get about twenty to twenty five kilometers per charge. Um, it is a smaller lightweight scooter, I think it only weighs twenty nine pounds and uh, it's got a little wooden deck on it, tiny little wheels uh, so it's a great little. Stick to bike lanes, uh, short-distance scooter. It folds up nicely, so you can fit in your
0: closet. Okay, are you still, you still doing a booming business down there? Every time I talk to you, you're telling me, hey, man, you're still, they're still flying off the shelf. Is that still the, still the situation?
3: Yeah, it's, it's definitely slowed down uh, in, in the entire outdoor industry in the past uh, six months. But uh, just after the COVID boom, the COVID boom made a huge disruption of these things. Because nobody wanted to take public transit. So the bike industry and our industry was just booming. And has yeah. slowed down to kind of go back to normal now. But, yeah, we still, uh, we're still we still seeing people every day come get these things. And it's considered end of season now. And people are still coming in every day to buy it.
0: Okay, last question. Where is your store located?
3: Yeah, we're located at 230 East Pender Street, just at Pender in Maine. In Chinatown. Bradley, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me again
0: talk about the devastating earthquake in morocco now the north african nation dealing with the aftermath of the most devastating quake they've experienced in decades it hit on september 8th one week ago in the high atlas mountain range around 70 kilometers southwest of marrakesh thousands killed thousands more injured rescue efforts still continuing hope fading for more survivors that gregor craigie standing by author of the book on borrowed time north america's next big quake first have a listen to this report this is cnn's reporter nada bashir stone by stone hour by hour the desperate search for survivors pushes on the silence in this remote mountainous village punctured only by the wails of those who survived Now left to mourn. Well, for the rescue team here, this really is a race against time. There is a woman and her 12-year-old daughter buried beneath the rubble and fall. Their family waiting anxiously for news of whether they have survived Friday's earthquake. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Gregor Craigie. Gregor is a journalist based in Victoria. I highly recommend his book, On Borrowed Time, North America's Next Big Quake. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Gregor, thanks for coming on today.
5: My pleasure, Mike. Good to talk to you again.
0: Yeah, likewise. I appreciate it a lot. And before we start talking about bringing it home here to B.C. And, and the situation we face here, let's talk a little bit about this Morocco quake, because I was just reading about, you know, this is a 6.8 quake, which I guess is not, not huge. Like, if you think about mm-hmm. the, the devastating quake in Turkey and Syria back in February, it was 7.8, yep. so this one this one's smaller. Why did it cause so much devastation, even if it was a smaller one?
5: It's a really good question because uh, the magnitude can be uh, can be a bit confusing. It, it speaks to the overall size of the quake. And in this case, a magnitude 6.8 means uh, that the fault or the the earthquake itself was probably about 30 kilometers long. Uh, But uh, but earthquakes, there's a few factors that matter, the overall size of it, but also uh, the proximity or how close it is. As you mentioned, Mike, it was about 70 kilometers from the city of Marrakesh. And closer to some of those villages, like the one where we heard that excellent report from. And so the closer you are to an earthquake or the closer it is to your city, the more damage it will do. I mean, for instance, it may be the case in Victoria here where I live, that uh, in the future... Uh, a shallow magnitude 7 earthquake could actually do more damage than an offshore magnitude 9 earthquake simply because it's closer. So uh, that kind of explains how this magnitude 6.8 uh, earthquake has done so much damage. damage. Yeah. Just, uh, just heartbreaking stories from Morocco.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, it is heartbreaking to watch the coverage here and see people suffering. And when you think about a country like a, a developing country like Morocco, are poorer countries or developing countries typically less, more, more uh, vulnerable to the devastation from a quake in terms of like, things like building standards or buildings that could fall down more
5: easily? Absolutely. And and I mean, one, one example I can think of that contrasts this and highlights that point is if you think back, I guess, about 12 years ago to the devastating earthquake in Haiti. And uh, within six months or so, uh, there was a, a similar magnitude. I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but they were both six point somethings. One in New Zealand, in Christchurch, which killed more than 100 people and it caused devastation in Christchurch. Don't get me wrong, but there was a there's a stark difference between tens or even hundreds. Hundreds of thousands of people killed because there just aren't the same building standards uh, versus hundreds of people killed in, in uh, developed cities. And in Haiti, it was really telling that they had so many buildings just collapse. But you looked at a lot of the foreign embassies like the U.S. embassy and so on that, that withstood the quake mostly fine. They didn't collapse yeah. or even suffer serious damage
0: yeah, and speaking of building standards, I want to ask you about the building standards here here at home in BC and whether they're up to, to standard going forward here. Speaking to Gregor Craigie, his book is on borrowed time, North America's Next Big quake. so if we, if we bring it home here, Gregor, like we're in an active area for tremors, right? Have, have you ever felt yeah. I think I have felt at least two or three tremors over over the years in Victoria. Have you ever felt felt the ground shake here?
5: I, I have. I've only felt two. The, the one yeah. was only, and this one uh, terrified me, Mike. I don't know if you remember this one. I'm thinking it was four years ago between Christmas and New Year's, about 11 yes. o'clock at night. It was only magnitude four point something. It was near Sydney. But I honestly felt for about two seconds like my whole house was about to fall over. And I'm not saying it was, but that's what it felt like. But but I've never felt anything bigger than that. So I can't, I can't claim uh, that firsthand. I felt extreme. that
0: one. I remember that one. Because I was at home too, and I felt the window shake in, in my yeah. house. That was a weird one. I felt one at the BC Legislature one time too, which was a little nerve-wracking. Ooh, yeah, where no where kidding. are we at? Like, can you describe the the threat here in in BC? Like, why? How active a zone is this?
5: well this is the big question i mean if you want to put a really rough uh, odds on it uh, uh for vancouver victoria and i mean every scientist i've spoken to they kind of flinch when you ask them this question because it's so hard and it's so imprecise uh to put odds on it but if, if we just talk about a let's say a major earthquake doesn't mean the biggest we could get but a major earthquake that would cause damage and, and threaten lives in the next 50 years I've heard a lot of scientists sort of say, okay, fine. If you really want to put odds on it, we'll say one in three for the South Whoa. coast of BC. And that, I mean, so, you know, those are pretty high odds and I, fine. You yeah. can flip it around and say, well, there's a two in three chance nothing's going to happen in the rest of my life. But uh, I mean, I've talked to a lot of, you know, medical professionals and other people who say, well, I, I wouldn't want to go in with those odds. So it's, it the, the risk is high enough and uh, and you know, we are ready in some places. Our, our new building code is, is pretty good. But boy, there's an awful lot of old buildings around us, Mike, including my house, which I'm talking to in right now, that are, just aren't ready. And uh, that we would better hope that earthquake holds off for, for quite a few more decades.
0: Okay, let's talk a little bit about that, like building standards in things in British Columbia. Have building standards been made more robust? Have they been upgraded in order to deal with yes. this threat?
5: Yeah, that's the good news. So, I mean, you walk downtown Vancouver and you've got, you know what it's like, you've got such a mixed bag. You've got old towers, beautiful old uh, towers that that are decades and decades old. You've got mid-century ones and then you've got brand new gleaming condo towers. And the building code is updated regularly. I think we're up to now every five years. And the good news is that the modern building code is extremely Uh, an extremely high standard so uh, any new buildings that are going up it's extremely unlikely that they are going to allow anyone to get killed in an earthquake now there's the question of whether they'll be usable or not and we tend to have a higher standards for buildings like hospitals that are built now because you want them to not only not kill anybody but you want them to be usable after the earthquake of course to treat victims and provide shelter and so on but boy there's a lot I mean there are thousands of Unreinforced masonry buildings in Vancouver and Victoria, and other cities like New Westminster and Esquimalt and Oak Bay, that haven't been reinforced. I mean, you just have to walk uh, uh, walk anywhere in the downtown east side, and you'll find a lot of the, the old single room occupancy uh, buildings have not been upgraded. They haven't been strengthened. So you heard that report from the CNN reporter in uh, Morocco. She talked about stone by stone. That's what you get in an earthquake when you have unreinforced masonry. Like they've got mortar holding them down and gravity, they'll withstand gravity for centuries. But the second you get a side to side shaking in an earthquake, they fall apart. And we could have that in downtown Victoria, lots of of Vancouver with older brick buildings and so on. That's the biggest threat. And so a lot of our older buildings, including Woodhouse, Houses like I live in are, are at risk. Okay,
0: last question for you, Gregor. So the building standards are one thing. What about the tsunami risk that we face here in BC? We've got the early warning systems for the tsunami, Right.
5: Yeah, and earthquakes Canada, the Natural Resources Canada, is developing that more and more. They're they're starting to uh, uh, to test it. It's going to be offered on our phones. That's really going to help in coastal communities like Tofino on the island. In places like Metro Vancouver, the tsunami risk is considerably less. I mean, there's still hypothetical causes of tsunami like a slump of the Fraser River Delta that could cause. Uh, closer smaller tsunamis in a place like richmond but the really big offshore ones are more of a, a concern for out outlying coastal communities like tofino uh Souk, not too far from us in victoria and some low-lying areas uh in metro vancouver greater victoria but but still probably for most of us in the big cities the earthquake is the bigger threat than the tsunami in this part of the world
0: okay let's hope it never happens gregor thank you for coming on to talk about it today
5: i share that hope mike yeah. all the best good to talk <laughs> again <laughs>